This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. In today's podcast, we hear about the world's largest radio telescope and how it's creating new opportunities for students studying science in South Africa. Then we take a look at how rapid ethical appraisers help researchers to ensure that biomedical study participants from developing countries are giving true informed consent. Finally, we hear about the expanding education frontier in sub-Saharan Africa and get the story behind a new trend of geojournalism. Coming up right after this. Welcome to the SciDevNet podcast, where we travel the globe to connect science and development through news, views, and analysis. Our goal is to raise awareness of the issues to help reduce poverty and improve sustainable development. And we kick off our podcast with a big hello from me, Chris Kreese. And a big hello from me, Rosina Mbewe. First up, we travel to a remote semi-desert in South Africa, an important field site for construction of the world's most powerful radio telescope. It's called the Square Kilometer Array, or SKA for short, and the SKA will combine more than 2,000 radio telescopes to survey our skies at the greatest speed and sensitivity yet. The plan is for scientists to use this technology to unlock secrets about the origins of our universe. SciDevNet multimedia producer Lou Del Bello is here in the studio to tell us more. Hi Chris, I'm very excited about this project after speaking with John Spoh, who is covering the story for SciDevNet. You can even see a short documentary he produced about it on our website. Mm. Um, just search radio telescope. Thanks, Lou. So what did you and John chat about? Uh, where researchers are anticipating breakthroughs in our understanding of things such as dark energy and what happened after the Big Bang. John told me there's another side of the project worth exploring too. Part of the SCAR funding is being invested to support local students interested in a career in science. Very neat. The idea is for Africans to develop the research skills needed to contribute to today's global knowledge economy. In fact, during my interview with John, you'll also hear from a Carnarvon High School student, Kyle Henderson, who is supported by SKA. I started our chat by asking John to tell us about his travel to the SKA site and about the people he met. The SKA site in South Africa is in the middle of an area called the Karoo, which is a huge semi-desert. And to get to this site, I had to travel for eight hours or so from Cape Town by car. And where it's situated, it's near a town called Carnarvon, which is about 80 kilometers away. And this area of South Africa is very undeveloped. There's a lot of unemployment. The educational attainment in schools is very low. So one of the features of the SKA project is that they want to use the project to help develop the skills of young people. So they're investing a lot in the schools. So in Carnarvon, which is a very sleepy town where not a lot has changed over the last 20 years. Whilst I was in Carnarvon, I met one student from the secondary school called Kyle who was keen to study engineering at Stellenbosch University and who had been inspired by the SKA. And in fact, one of his ambitions was maybe to come back and work for SKA. Um, I'm Kai Henderson. I just turned um, 17 today. And I'm from Carnarvon. I'm living here since birth. 
but I was born in Cape Town. And what are you studying at the moment at school? Um, I'm doing physical science, and if you do physical science, especially you must do maths. So I have maths, biology, and um, my languages. And I believe you're on a, a scheme which is organised by the SKA project. Could you just tell us about the scheme, what, it, what the scheme is? Okay, um, we are in a, it's just a one-year contract. So they, they sponsor you and they give you a lot of opportunities and you are willing to do good. It's kind of a thing you must do to better in physics, science and maths. So would you like to see yourself working for SKA in the future? Yes, I, I would not even think twice for me to um, get my feet and just, just not pro, um, concentrate on one of uh, things, but provide me with a lot of education and a lot of learning. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully <laughs> will be success. <laughs> when the SKA is complete in 2028, it will be the most powerful radio telescope in the world. It will be looking to solve some of the mysteries of the universe, looking back to just after the creation of the universe. One of the incredible things is this radio telescope will be able to pick up frequencies that were emitted billions of years ago. And some of the figures that I was told about the SKA radio telescope are quite mind-blowing. So, for example, it'll need a computer that will have the equivalent power of 100 million PCs. The amount of data that it'll be receiving will be the equivalent of the complete worldwide traffic on the World Wide Web. So it is a huge big data project, basically. Many thanks to John Spall, Kyle Henderson and Lou Del Bello for that interview. Thank you. So do you have an update on Kyle? Yes. He is working hard on his studies using a computer donated by SKA and is a star pupil at the Carnegie High School. SKA is hoping students in the program will come back to work there as scientists or engineers. Hmm. Recently, Kyle has been taken to science festivals and to a school workshop in Stellenbosch, which was overseen by British astrophysicist Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Sounds like he's been bitten by the science bug. <laughs> Keep up the great work, Kyle. Yeah. So, um, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about the science of the SKA for a minute? <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> when I heard about the project, I wanted to find out more about radio telescopes to understand its significance. Hmm. And what did you find? A radio telescope is similar to an optical telescope, except that it measures radio waves, which are electromagnetic, instead of light waves. Right. And uh, radio waves are different from what we hear from our radio. Yes. <laughs> a radio produces sound waves by generating changes in air pressure. But radio waves can travel through a vacuum. So when you turn on your radio, the transmitter at the station has converted electromagnetic waves into a frequency which our radios decode and then turn it into sound waves for us to hear. And of course, the great things about radio waves is that they can travel long distances. Exactly. <laughs> so radio telescopes allow us to study the radio waves produced by astronomical objects and then computers translate this information into a picture of objects really far away in space. So why not just use an optical telescope? That is a good question. It's because radio waves aren't scattered or absorbed like light waves, so we can get a clearer picture of celestial objects that would otherwise be hidden by things like dust clouds. Mm. Though I should say we do need to avoid human radio interference, which is why the square kilometer array is situated in quite remote deserts. 
also because radio waves are much longer than light waves, mm -hmm. we need much larger areas to capture them at high resolution. Uh-huh. So this is why the SKA project will combine signals from thousands of small antennas spread over more than 3,000 kilometers mm -hmm. to act as one big radio telescope. That's right. I'm so excited about what we might find. Me too. The SKA will give scientists the ability to do all sorts of things, from testing Einstein's theory of general relativity and investigating how stars and galaxies formed, to even searching for extraterrestrial life. It is really great to see Africa at a frontier of physics and space exploration. Indeed. Stick around, Lou. We have another interview with you later in the show. But first, we hear about a new approach to tackle a disease of the poor. In developing countries where the disease burden is high, there is a clear need to expand medical research, but in areas where literacy is low, the process of obtaining informed consent can be rather difficult. Scientists building on the work of anthropologists have been developing new approaches for rapid ethical appraisal of how different groups in Africa grapple with participation in medical studies and deal with the issue of consent. Melanie Newport is at the front lines of this work. She's a professor of infectious diseases and global health at the Brighton and Sussex Medical School and director of their Center for Global Health Research. Melanie is also a collaborator on a research program in Ethiopia which investigates the genetic basis of podoconiosis. Podoconiosis, also known as non-filarial elephantiasis, is called a disease of the poor because it affects people living and working barefoot. It's a disease of the lymph vessels in the feet and legs caused by chronic exposure to irritating minerals in volcanic red clay soil. The disease causes serious swelling, leading to disfigurement and disability, and affects nearly 4 million people worldwide, especially in Africa, India, and Central America. In Ethiopia alone, more people are afflicted by podoconiosis than by HIV. Eradication of podoconiosis is possible. In fact, it was eradicated from Scotland, France, and the Canary Islands. And research into the genetics of susceptibility to this disease will help. But this research hinges on changes to the Western process of obtaining informed consent from African participants. SciDevNet editor Kaz Yanofsky caught up with Professor Newport by the sea in Brighton to find out more about rapid ethical appraisal. Rapid ethical appraisal. Can you summarise what that is? Well, it's a way of approaching a community where you are interested in conducting a research project. It's a way of connecting with the community to understand what their concerns are about the research, what their interest is in the research, before you undertake actually doing the research, and to help you make sure that when you take informed consent to do the research, that you're taking true informed consent. So it's about understanding the community's perceptions of research, what they know about the disease that you're researching, what they understand about 
giving consent, decision-making processes in consent, and who should be actually giving consent. We're working in developing countries. We're interested in global health, diseases of poverty. We work in communities where, which are very poor and where levels of formal education are low or non-existent, so mostly illiterate communities. So the models that we use for ethical consent for example in the West, are not applicable. Obviously we need to do the research to the highest ethical standards, but we can't just cut and paste all the protocols that we use into that setting. And we therefore need to discuss with the communities, understand what the issues are for them, and to ensure that they truly comprehend the research that is being proposed, that they understand what we're doing, the difference, for example, between research and treatment, that therapeutic misconception, so that we are comfortable that they are consenting with good understanding of what we're doing. Can you tell me what the procedure is? Okay, well, we will have an idea for studies. So, for example, podoconiosis is a neglected tropical disease. It's a significant health burden and a disease of the poor. So our mission is to eradicate podoconiosis ultimately. We need to understand these issues. So the process is to work with the local community and with groups that are already acting within the community and various stakeholders. So there'll be the community members themselves, community leaders, people who work with NGOs that might support patients with the disease, health centres and we interview people, do in-depth discussions and have focus groups to find out what their concerns are. We usually use a structured questionnaire and ask them for example what their understanding of research is, what's their understanding of what causes podoconiosis, who do they think should give consent, should it be the individual, should it be the family, what is the role of the community leader in this process and so on and it's an iterative process and we keep interviewing people until we run out of ideas or new themes and then we review the data and analyse it. We go back to the community and discuss with them and the final output is a process for obtaining informed consent, uh, how, how the community want us to go about that. So it will, for example, start out at the community level, sensitisation discussions with the groups, then it will focus down to a smaller community unit, then to the family and then finally to the individual who will give the consent and give the sample. In the work that you're doing, you ask people to supply specimens, which you then take back, and but you're getting them to sign consent forms or agree verbally to yes. consent. Do you ever get people resisting that? Well, one of the interesting outcomes of doing this rapid ethical appraisal beforehand was that we needed to enrol 200 families and 200 control individuals to do the genetic study, and only three out of the 200 sets of people actually refused to join the study. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And what we didn't do was the control, if you like, to ask for consent before we'd done the rapid ethical appraisal because perhaps we would have had a higher refusal rate. But I think spending the time explaining to the communities what you're doing, why, what the benefits will be, and they don't necessarily benefit themselves, but the community in the future might. And if it's a genetic study, then their descendants in the future could benefit. Then taking that trouble to explain it, people then are willing to consent because they can see the benefit. And they, the other thing that came out as a really important factor was confidentiality and trust. So if they could trust that their data would be anonymised, that the information they gave us was confidential, they were more likely to consent as well to join the study. What I found particularly exciting was this idea of transfer between disciplines. There's something called rapid ethnographic, ethnographic appraisal. Yeah. Has this enlightened you in any way about the dialogue between, say, the humanities and the sciences in the development context? 
Well, the rapid ethical appraisal was very much developed from the rapid ethnographic appraisal, but it was made to be used in particularly medically-based health research questions, so that's where it evolved from. But one of the things that I've enjoyed so much about working in this area and in global health more generally is the interdisciplinary nature of it and how we do all learn from each other. And I don't have any training in anthropology. I'm very much a sort of biomedical scientist, but I do see the connections, yes, and, and what we can learn from each other. Is there a, a positive success story that you could share with us? One of the things we're most proud of is that, as well as actually undertaking the research to try and understand the diseases and lead to better treatments and improvement in health and poverty alleviation through better health, is the work that we've been doing in capacity building for research. So in all of our projects, our aim is to have people from Ethiopia, Cameroon, being the scientists working on the projects and training. So for Seal Tokola, who did his PhD with us on the genetics of podoconiosis, he undertook the rapid ethics appraisal in Ethiopia. He undertook the genetics work and he did a fantastic PhD. He was one of the best PhD students we had at BSMS. He got his work published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we've facilitated a really bright Ethiopian scientist on a career trajectory that looks very bright. And that role that we play is, is very rewarding. Are there other institutions in Africa that are taking this up on the continent rather than going abroad to get their PhDs? There is an increasing understanding, I think, in the research world that there is a need to build capacity. So there's a unit in Kalifi in Kenya, MRC fund centres in the Gambia and Uganda where the focus is very much on training local scientists and furthering their careers. And the Wellcome Trust Centres for Global Health Research, of which we've recently become a member of that group, the whole focus of those centres is to support scientists from low and middle income countries to develop their scientific careers and to be based in their countries. But as the centre here in Brighton, it's our duty to facilitate take their training, perhaps helping them to go to the best labs in the world or to the best centres in the world for their discipline, but to be returning back to their country, developing their own groups and building capacity in their countries. Emily, thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> thank you. Many thanks to Professor Melanie Newport and Kaz Janowski for that interview. You know, Chris, it was good to hear about this new approach to understand how individual communities deal with the issue of concern before they are asked to participate in biomedical studies. Yes, and as Melanie and Kaz mentioned, rapid ethical appraisal is a lot like ethnographic sleuthing to understand how people think to make sure they're giving genuine informed consent. That makes sense, because in some communities, the permissions process may need to root through community elders when decision-making at the level of individuals is de-emphasized. Right, and where there is illiteracy, reading a checklist of information and signing at the bottom isn't a valid option, so the scientists need to adjust their approach. And if there is strong trust in an associated NGO, that could potentially interfere with a clear understanding of the risks involved in a particular research study. Good point. These are just some of the reasons why Melanie and collaborators suggest rapid ethical assessment to adapt informed consent procedures on a case-by-case basis. I'm glad to hear that. So where do things stand now with Professor Newport's research? Well, everyone suspected there was a hereditary component to podoconiosis because it isn't communicable and it tends to run in families. But this now has been confirmed because the researchers discovered genetic variants associated with the disease within a region of the genome known as HLA class 2. 
HLA class 2? <laughs> it's a fancy term for the genetic information that codes for a family of molecules used by the cells in our immune system. Gotcha. It turns out that the people who have these genetic variants are two to three times more likely to develop podoconiosis. But on a positive note, it sounds like there is potential to develop treatments targeting the immune response. That's true, though it's still early days. Now they're trying to pinpoint exactly which molecules are involved. In the meantime, because podoconiosis was added to the World Health Organization's list of neglected tropical diseases, Professor Newport and colleagues launched an international initiative. It's called Footwork, and you can find their website at www.podo.org. Thanks, Chris. Up next, we hear about the push for more PhDs in Africa. Now, we leave the seaside in Brighton, England, for the higher elevation hills and valleys around Pretoria, South Africa. The National Research Foundation of South Africa and the Kanaki Corporation of New York hosted a conference in October called Expanding and Sustaining Excellence in Doctoral Programs in Sub-Saharan Africa, what needs to be done? It's a timely issue because South Africa's National Research Foundation has made doctoral training a priority for African higher education and is working to increase the number of doctoral graduates per year. Increasing PhDs is also a goal of the National Development Plan and figures in the new white paper for post-school education and training. At the conference, side of editor Kazianowski met up with Yantiamo Abeidu a professor of zoology in the Department of Animal Biology and Conservation Science at the University of Ghana. Ya also coordinates PhD programs for the university and is working to attract more students into graduate work in Africa. In this interview, you'll hear about an initiative where she invited members of Africa's diaspora to come to her university with some pretty far-reaching consequences. Kaz started their chart by asking Professor Antiamo Abeidu about the relevance of increasing PhDs. It's extremely relevant. We do need people to teach, qualified people to teach in our universities. There has been a huge growth in number of universities and they don't have faculty. Secondly, if we are going to grow our industries, if we look at our development agenda, you need qualified people, skilled people, to be able to move things forward. Now, I gather this is something of a challenge. How do you persuade governments that this is a good thing? What do you practically do? Well, first, we start with our own university. For example, in the University of Ghana, we've just restructured our PhD program. We used to have a three-year PhD by research. In order to enhance the quality, we have introduced a four-year program. Year one is a taught course to deepen the theoretical basis of the students. And year two is a practical or you know, internship or experiential learning. And then three and four by research. So by doing this, we expect that our products will have higher quality. They will be able to address national issues and that's the only way that we can make ourselves relevant to governments because if government has a problem they want to be able to come to the university and say this is a problem how can you address it through research and without a phd it's very difficult to do really cutting-edge research we were looking at practical 
approaches today, so we weren't discussing issues or anything, but, you know, what needs to be done. And you, you were, I think, quite vocal today. Now, which recommendation or recommendations do you think should be on that piece of paper? I think all of them are important. I think our governments have a big role to play and our vice-chancellors need to bring them on board. I think locally also we have a lot to do in terms of improving quality, in terms of providing incentives for supervisors, in terms of providing space, facilities and all that to make it attractive for PhD students to want to study at our universities. You mentioned the diaspora, the importance of the diaspora, and I, I think you were the only voice that really brought them into the picture. Can you share with us your experience of doing this in Ghana? Right, perhaps I was the only one in the room who has had a direct experience with using diaspora. And I'll give you just one example. We have a young engineering faculty and we decided that we want them to develop postgraduate programs, MPhil and PhD. What I did was to draw on African professors in the diaspora and I got people from Princeton University, University of Connecticut, universities in France, universities in Nigeria, brought them together they sat in a retreat setting with our faculty and within a week I had postgraduate program outlines in three disciplines, biomedical engineering, material science and engineering and computer science. This would have taken six months or more to do but I got it done in a week because I had these very experienced professors who came and offered their advice and their support. And what's even more important, they pledged support for teaching the modules. And since they've gone back, they've been able to encourage and mobilize other professors to join in the team. The other aspect was that by them coming, and these were some very experienced professors, they generated a new enthusiasm in our faculty, which was great. And they've already started discussing joint research initiatives. So that's why I feel there's such a huge potential in drawing on African professors in the diaspora. Can you give us a flavor of what the conversations were like that you're having in this retreat? Some of the energy and the enthusiasm, were they all of the same mind or did they all come at it from different angles? They all came from different angles, but they all started off with the question, PhD for what and who are your stakeholders? And after going through that exercise, it was pretty straightforward because then everybody shared in what we are doing and who we are producing the PhD for. And therefore, if these are your customers, what sort of courses do you need to do for your product to be marketable? So that's incredible. So PhD for who? So who was included? Those disciplines that you've mentioned? Industries, the health sector, pharmaceutical companies, and so on. Professor, thank you very much indeed. Thank you too. Many thanks to Professor Antiamo Abedu and Kazianowski for that interesting discussion. This interview is part of SciDevNet's new series on PhDs and development in sub-Saharan Africa. 
And Rosina, Kaz reports that the Carnegie Corporation of New York invited SciDev to collaborate on an initiative aimed at developing and retaining the next generation of African academics. By academics, you mean the people who do research and teaching at the university level? Exactly. And the main idea behind this initiative is that while Africa moves toward greater peace and stability and enjoys rapid economic growth, it will need a revival of higher education to establish its scientific and technological independence. On that note, I thought Professor Antiamo Abedu's idea to involve professors from the African diaspora was inspired. Mm -hmm. It sounds like their participation in developing local graduate programs is rapidly improving curriculum and generating lots of enthusiasm. Yes, it was interesting to hear too about the change from a three to a four-year PhD program so that students are better prepared to get to work on important national issues. Speaking of PhD standards, Chris, have you seen uh, Cheryl Delaray's side of article, Reshaping African PhDs for Development? It addresses the sticky subject of requirements for a doctoral degree. Yes, I've read that one. Shiro is the vice chancellor and principal of the University of Pretoria in South Africa. And I recall that she points out a serious debate over the merits of different types of doctoral programs. Yes. In South Africa, the National Qualifications Framework was revised last year to allow two different types of PhDs. The traditional PhD requires a research-based thesis, whereas the professional doctorate requires some research combined with more course and practical work. The idea is that the professional doctorate can get graduates contributing to industry much faster. But apparently, some research-focused universities in South Africa view this new professional PhD as low quality. Hmm, the debate raises a good question, doesn't it, Rosina? With a need for more African PhDs to grow intellectual output, what is the best way to fast-track a new generation of academics? Well, there's no simple answer. SciDevNet does cover this topic in a wide range of education issues, from postgraduate enrollment and gender equality to the links between PhDs and economic growth. So for more of these stories and to read Cheryl's article, you can go to www.scidev.net and search African PhD. Up next, our final interview investigates the new trend of geojournalism. In February, SciDevNet hosted a London event called Making It Count, Big Data, the Open Revolution and Public Engagement with the International Development Research Centre and UK Collaborative on Development Sciences. The meeting cut to the heart of challenges to increase public engagement with research data and provided some solution ideas and policy recommendations. One of the recommendations was to increase support for geojournalism. SciDevNet editor Kaz Yanofsky and William Schubert, senior project coordinator for Internews' Earth Journalism Network, guided a session called Engaging Southern Media Partners to explore the topic. Here to tell us more is Lou Del Bello, who interviewed Kaz about this new journalism trend. Hi, Chris and Rosina. I started our chat by asking Kaz to explain this idea of geojournalism. Geojournalism is a synthesis, a symbiosis between two types of things. First of all, maps, interactive maps. Willie used to work for National Geographic, and he's, he's somebody who's just fascinated by mapping mapping the world, you know, mapping the oceans, 
mapping climate. Um, but he's also a journalist. And interestingly enough, as geojournalism suggests, it's a combination of information that you get from maps and stories that you get from journalists. I found that fascinating. So he says that maps usually give you facts about, for example, where pollution is, where there's degradation of habitat, forests, you know, how they're vanishing. But it doesn't provide you with an explanation or a context. So if you want to stop that happening and you want to, for example, influence policy, you need to, in a sense, interpret it. So that means bringing the journalistic storytelling skills to those maps. And that combination of the two is what he calls geojournalism, which is, you know, I think a, a great term. Is Willie working on a geojournalist project at the moment? Did he give any example? So you can hear Willie's excellent presentation if you just go to the website, scidev.net, and find the live streaming for the event. And it was in, on in the afternoon. It was a lovely, lovely filmed presentation. But I would say, as, as a highlight for me, well, he said that his involvement in this kind of journalism uh, started with a project called Info Amazonia, which is really beautiful. It shows over a period of 30 years how the Amazon basin, the rainforest, has changed. You know, mainly you can see it being eaten away by all sorts of things, cattle ranching, mining, road construction, you know, construction of um, hydroelectric projects, urbanization. And it's a, it's a very disturbing thing for somebody like me because I've never been to the Amazon. And as a child, I often dreamt of going there. But for me, I always imagined it as this endless ocean of beauty, of kind of biodiversity, beautiful sounds, you know, fabulous rivers, interesting people, adventure. So, you know, I've been watching with some concern how this is all being eaten away. And his project shows that, but it shows other things. The Amazon basin doesn't just exist in one country. This is very important from Willie's perspective, because he says that I think there are about nine countries that, that actually have the Amazon in it. So that's nine different governments, nine different kind of mindsets in a sense. So if you want to try and protect some of those areas or if you want to regulate the mining that's going on or the road building, you've really got to go beyond geographic boundaries. And one of the wonderful things about geojournalism is that it makes use of local journalists who get local stories and have a local perspective on things. And Willie's organization aggregates those and makes them available. The maps are for sharing and everything is open and it's rather amazing. So why is this important? You know, what's this going to do? He used a lovely expression. He said, this makes people aware that the world is watching. So normally these things like mining and, you know, deforestation, ranching, they all happen in secret or you never get a totally kind of global perspective on what's happening. So nobody can actually tell the story of what's happening. They can see it in a fragmented way. This idea of the world watching is fantastic, I think, because that should make policymakers more careful about what they do, where they put their money, who they go to bed with, in a sense. That make me think about the idea of citizen journalism. Do you think the two are somehow related? Or it takes uh, some special skills to be a geojournalist? I don't think so. I think the thing is that it's an accessible form. If you learn basic journalistic skills, you can do it. Citizen journalism is really fascinating as well. And Willie talked about that too. He said he was involved in a, a balloon project. 
So when the BP oil spill happened, BP managed to shut off the airspace around the area, stopped all shipping going into it. So nobody really knew the extent of damage. So when it came to payback time and people were saying, well, you know, you caused this, uh, this spill, how much are you going to pay and who are you going to pay it to? That would have been very difficult with the basic data sets missing because they were just kind of locked out. So the people involved in cleaning the beaches and looking after the fishing stocks and trying to get things back to normal had this great idea that they would get balloons with little cameras on them to go up over the area, float about, send back the footage. Willie's organization then used a computer programmer program which stitched together those maps that were created from these things. And together they got an amazing picture which they could then use as evidence to make their claims. And I think that's an incredible success story. And it really puts science and journalism, I think, in a wonderful synthesis into the hands of the people. So really, I think the big news in the future is that we want to empower citizens to be able to use data, access it, think of it creatively. And organizations like Willie's are doing it. Many thanks to Kazianowski and Ludibello for that stimulating discussion about the future of journalism. Thanks, Rosina. I thought I would mention that if you search online for Geojournalism Handbook, you can find a set of tutorials to learn about how to incorporate more data into environmental reporting. It was created by the Environmental News Lab, Earth Journalism Network, and a flagged project and it's a great resource for anyone interested in becoming a geojournalist. Thanks, Lou. I thought it was heartening to hear Kaz say that anyone can become a geojournalist if they learn the necessary skills. So I'm curious, what is SciDev doing to support the same? At the moment, SciDevNet is not a media partner of the Earth Journalist Network. However, we are committed to training local reporters and improving the quality of science communication in developing countries. Last year, for example, we ran three workshops to train journalists from Kenya, Egypt, Francophone Africa and the Philippines. And we are planning a similar workshop in India in the month ahead. That's great to hear. And Lou, we were chatting this morning about how SideofNate supports journalists in developing countries through its local news editions. Mm -hmm. So far, we supported and published nearly 200 local journalists through our local edition, representing Latin America and the Caribbean, the Middle East and North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and the Pacific. I'm quite keen on this idea of local people taking up the role of watchdog and reporting on the issues outside their front door. If you think about it, just as citizen scientists are changing the face of research involving citizens in the quest for finding and interpreting environmental data will also change the face of journalism. Exactly. And a collective jigsaw of voices can tell more than the sum of its parts. Thanks, Lou. That is a wonderful note to end on. And that's our podcast. To comment on this show and other articles, go to our website at www.scidev.net. 
If you have a story to share, check out our Work With Us page. You can also visit the Donate To Us page if you'd like to contribute to SciDev's support of journalists in developing countries. To listen to a podcast whenever you like, you can also find us on SoundCloud. Just search for SciDev. In the meantime, to stay connected, you can follow us on Twitter at SciDevNet and on Facebook. And if you have a question, idea to share, or want to get involved, you can email us info at SciDev.net. That leaves us to say many thanks to Kyle Henderson, John Spall, Melanie Newport, Kazianovsky, Yantia Moabedu, and Ludi Bello. And thanks to you, our listeners, for helping us put science at the heart of global development. Until next time, I'll say bye-bye from me, Rosina Mbewe. And bye from me, Chris Kreese. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Cambridge 105. Cambridge 105.